Hey Shin, you know when you are not hungry, but you still would eat a whole bag of barbecue flavored chips. I wonder what are the mechanisms that govern these stimuli in our brain? I actually don't like barbecue flavored chips, Mehdi, so I'm not sure about that. But that is a very interesting question, and you'll never guess what. What, Shin? Well, our guest today has a very good answer to that. Dr. Scott Sternson and his team at the University of California is working very hard to understand how the brain controls appetite and what are the mechanisms underlying basic motivations such as hunger. Oh, what a coincidence. I can't wait to know the answer. I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a new episode of Science Rehashed. So, Shen, you told me earlier that you want to read out one of the reviews for our podcast? Yes, Mehdi, I'm glad you reminded me. Omya left us a very encouraging feedback, and I quote, I really enjoyed the way the episodes are structured and the content, of course. I mentioned this because some podcasts tend to do a good job of describing subject matters, but fall short in the setup and conclusion. Keep up the good work. Blessings to y'all. Thank you, Onya, for your kind words. I'm really glad you like our episode structure because we constantly work on it and we try to bring out the best to you all. So listeners, I encourage you to leave your thoughts about Science Rehashed on Apple Podcasts so that I can also read your comments in our next episode. So at Science Rehash, we're a team of passionate volunteers who want to bring new science and scientists' journey through this podcast to you. We would really appreciate your support in the form of being our patron or simply spreading the word about us to your friends. You can find more information about our Patreon account on our website, sciencerehash.com, under the Support Us tab. So, Dr. Scott Sterenson, take it away. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm a group leader and investigator at the Janelia Research Campus in Northern Virginia. It's part of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And my lab studies the neurobiology of appetite. And we're interested in the motivational principles underlying the desire for food, for water, and also how this intersects with other motivational states, for example, fear and stress. That's fantastic. I'm really glad you're focusing on this. We're always wondering, you know, where do our PIs, investigators kind of come from? Where do they start? And how do they end up on this particular topic that they're interested in now? So my background is actually in synthetic chemistry, and I, I did my PhD at Harvard just making molecules. And while I was doing that work, I was very interested in the question of just why do we do the things that we do? And I think that from a chemist's perspective, I wanted to understand that at uh, initially the most basic levels, right? Why do Why do I like eating food instead of rocks, right? I mean, it's obvious the, the, the food has some physiological value or a little bit more complicated. Why do people and other types of animals have friends and social affiliations, whereas another animal might not, like a solitary predator, like a tiger, might not have friends? So what are the sort of the reasons that we have the preferences and the priorities that we do? And so 
These are pretty complicated issues. And so I, I focused on what I think of as the neurobiology of need. And by need, I mean the physiological requirements for survival. And we've all had these experiences if we're hungry or thirsty or cold or even out of breath at the bottom of the pool for too long, for example. And so this, these types of really basic survival needs appealed to me from the mindset of a chemist. Uh, chemical thinking really emphasizes the search for simplifying principles that explain the complexities that we're confronted with as we attempt to understand nature. And for example, one of the really enduringly attractive aspects of chemistry was that very complex molecules can be broken down and then built up by a very simple set of rules. And so I started thinking about what would be the simplifying principles for the origins of animal behaviors and what are the, essentially the tricks that nature uses to make sure that the needs of the body are fulfilled. And, and so that really that kind of thought process led me on this arc from the, the really rigorous mechanistic thinking that is uh, very commonplace in chemistry, and then trying to find those same types of simplifying rules for understanding how our most basic behaviors are coordinated and organized. And what has been or what have been the main obstacles when you started the study of these mechanisms and the field in general? Right. So when I first came to this field, it was primarily a branch of endocrinology and to some extent neuroendocrinology, meaning that the focus was on the hormones and uh, other molecules that are hormone-like called neuropeptides that would broadly influence the behavior of other animals. And so the challenge really was taking that and bringing that into more of a traditional neuroscience framework. In, in neuroscience, we typically think of how the brain works with the analogy of elect electronic circuits, right? We have these ideas that uh, there are cells in the brain called neurons, and that these effectively act as the circuit nodes. And then these uh, neurons are connected to each other by subcellular structures called axons, which are essentially the wires in, in the circuits, okay? And so there was very little work that was being done to look at the way in which different types of neurons were interconnected in a way that would create the types of behaviors that we associated with hunger or with thirst. And so what we really needed were ways to go in and take a particular type of neuron, maybe a neuropeptide expressing type, for example, I mentioned those earlier, they're sort of like hormones for the brain, and be able to manipulate them selectively. Uh, so that we can understand what is their true contribution to a particular behavior. How do they participate individually in the extremely complex circuits that make up both our brains, but also in the mouse, which is the organism that my lab studies? Uh, so these types of these were these have been sort of the long-standing challenges in neuroscience, and they were especially important to the questions related to the control of appetite because, one thing about the control of appetite is there'd already been a number of these neuropeptides identified. So we knew we should start by studying those neuropeptide expressing cell type. And we just needed the types of methods that would allow us to selectively control these neurons to figure out what their true contribution to appetite was. And why was that a good time to try to answer these questions? When I started my lab in 2007, that was exactly the time where for new tools that were extremely helpful for advancing those types of studies had become available. I'm talking about methods like optogenetics, where microbial opsins have been demonstrated that they can be expressed in mammalian neurons. 
and, and then that would allow us to use light to control the electrical activity of those neurons. It was like reaching into a circuit node and then just providing a little bit of an extra impulse to those nodes and saying, well, now if I increase the activity at node, what's the effect on behavior? And so there were a lot of theories about different neurons that were going to be involved in the behavior. And we could go in and just test those different circuit nodes one by one and essentially prioritize their contribution. And what was your first finding then? We found that one of the cell types, the circuit nodes that was you know, really thought to be a, a good candidate for controlling appetite, a cell type that we call the AGRP neuron based on the expression of the gene AGRP had a really profound effect on appetite when we activated it. It caused an animal to behave as if it was voraciously hungry. And so for a long time, my lab uh, studied this neuron and how it both was modulated by physiological state and how it was able to control appetite. And where was this neuron? These neurons are located in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is really interesting to a lot of people because it's full of different types of cells that seem to control different motivations. This property of the hypothalamus has been known for the better part of the last century. Individuals had found even by just lesioning or where there were tumors growing or an electrical stimulation or injection of different chemicals that would produce, depending on exactly where in the hypothalamus these stimuli were applied, you might get extremely different behaviors. So people had observed the ability of these external perturbations targeted to different parts of the hypothalamus to elicit eating or drinking or sexual behaviors or aggression. There were fear responses. There are all sorts of physiological responses as well, like cardiovascular responses and effects on stress hormones. So this is an extremely behaviorally rich part of the brain. And the idea that people have walked around with about the hypothalamus is essentially the, one of the primary parts of the brain that has evolved the some key actuators that elicit different motivations. I just mentioned a whole list of them. And all of these different motivations are thought to have specific cell types, and those cell types are engaged in specific circuits that are thought to mediate these distinct motivations. And so we focus, first of all, on the question of, well, how can this single neuron population, this AGRP neuron population that we showed when we activated, an animal would just behave as if it was voraciously hungry within a few minutes. Uh, how does that kind of control in a, a, a very specific motivational state? And then that sort of led to some additional questions. Well, you have all these motivational states that are represented by intermingled circuits. So how do they stay separate? And what does it really mean to be a distinct motivational state? And these are the types of questions that my lab still works on. Are the AGRP neurons also control the thirst? What's quite striking is the degree to which the AGRP neurons are very selective for hunger-mediated responses. There's really no sign that they are affecting thirst directly. There is a question of whether or not neurons like the AGRP neuron might cross-inhibit other motivational states, and there is some evidence for that type of thing. So pain responses are reduced, for example. Fear responses are reduced, which makes sense in a way because you might expect that Seeking food, which is what the AGRP neurons really cause you to do, it causes you to go out and look for food, it also is associated with taking a lot of risks and potentially enduring some level of pain. If you're hungry, you really need to get food as opposed to dealing with other motivational states. Now, 
exactly how that works, whether it's through direct cross inhibition of neurons that are, are sensing different motivational states. You mentioned thirst. There's an, another neuron population in a different part of the brain, which is relevant to the study that I think we'll talk about, called SFO neurons. And these SFO neurons, instead of being sensitive to the energetic state of the animal, they're sensitive to the dehydration state of the animal. If you're dehydrated, these neurons become activated and they selectively elicit drinking. The way to think about the systems that control hunger and thirst and a variety of other motivations that we've already discussed is essentially you have a bunch of neurons in the brain that are like sensory neurons, but they're sensory neurons for your internal state. And they're monitoring all of these different parameters that are associated with your physiology. So for example, your body weight is regulated. I mean, people often think that it's you know a function of some sort of volitional control. I, I choose to eat or I don't, but really your body weight is the result of a process that is regulated nearly as much as your internal body temperature. Everyone appreciates that you have an internal thermostat right around 98.6 Fahrenheit, 37.5 Celsius. The idea is that there is a related adipostat that's involved in regulating body weight and there's also a regulation of your hydration state. And all of these different uh, systems control your physiology and your behavior. They are reading out all these sensors throughout your body. And they even have their own sensors in some cases in order to control their activity. In a recent paper in Cell titled Hindbrain Double Negative Feedback Mediates Palatability Guided Food and Water Consumption, you've identified a set of neurons that are a convergence point for the hunger and thirst circuits. And this is very exciting because for me, in real life, what happens is that I think I am hungry, but actually perhaps I'm thirsty. And I've been told that quite a few times. And I know personally, I am always dehydrated. So this is great to know. Can you tell us a little bit about how this convergence cell type was discovered and how you went about discovering and testing this hypothesis? What we wound up studying was, was essentially the neural processes that are related to an observation that we've all experienced where food tastes better when you're hungry. Hunger is the best sauce. And I think we've all had this experience that if you haven't eaten for a while, food just tastes really, really good. Now, when we started off down the road that led us to study that problem, we actually had a somewhat more rigorous set of questions, which is that, uh, you know, I told you that we have the thirst neurons and then the energy deficit recognizing neurons, the AGRP neurons. And so we were interested in understanding how these hunger and thirst processes were actually similar. Okay, so it's obvious that being hungry and thirsty have, you know, really clear differences, but there are also certain similarities. We're ingesting food, we're ingesting water. And so much less was known uh, about the neurobiology of the way in which these different processes were similar. And so what we decided to do was to take advantage of the fact, as I as was describing earlier, that we could use this optogenetic technique to selectively activate the hunger neurons or selectively activate the thirst neurons and ask, where in downstream brain regions do they lead to modulation of neuron activity? And we also used another technique where we could map their circuits downstream of these neurons and see whether there were convergence points in their circuit. And so what we wound up finding is another number of brain regions where these convergence points existed. We found a number of these potential convergence points between these circuits, and, and a number of them were in brain regions that 
were already pretty well studied. Parts of the hypothalamus, parts of the another part of the brain called the thalamus. But what really jumped out at us is there was a brain region about which very little was known in the hindbrain called the perilocus ceruleus. And this is a brain region that had actually been identified previously as potentially being involved in salt motivation. And while we were working on this study, another lab actually published a paper indicating that it might be involved in satiety. And so it's an area that's been a brain area that's been getting increasing attention. But this idea that there was any sort of convergence between hunger and thirst signals there, there was really no understanding of that and and really not much of an expectation of it either. And so we found that these neurons, when we activated them, would suppress appetite, right? Remember the neurons that we started from increase appetite and that when we inhibited them, peri-LC neurons, that's what we abbreviate the peri-local ceruleus as, the peri-LC. When we inhibited these peri-LC neurons, it would increase appetite. And so we knew we had a, a part of the brain that was functionally important for controlling some of these appetitive behaviors, but we didn't really understand how it worked just by turning a neuron up or turning it down. We wanted to understand how these neurons really worked, what they really responded to. And for that, you need methods to measure the actual electrical activity or something that corresponds to the electrical activity with a high temporal resolution. What I mean by that is sub-second time resolutions where you see how the neurons are responding as the animal performs every aspect of its behavior. And so we turned to a method called calcium imaging where we expressed a a protein in these peri-LC neurons that would light up whenever the calcium levels of the cell rise. And calcium corresponds quite nicely to increased electrical activity in neurons. And so when we did that, we saw that the activity of these neurons really corresponded extremely well just when the animal was actually ingesting food. Not really before that and not after that, but while it was ingesting food, these neurons were modulated. And in addition, it wasn't just food. These neurons also showed modulation when animals ingested water, but it didn't seem to correlate with how many licks they took. And the neurons didn't respond strongly when we gave the animal a non-food or water object, like a little wood block that looked like the food it got. These neurons were not modulated. And so it seemed to be specifically related to the ingestion of food and water. In addition, we found that the inhibition of these neurons, so these neurons, some of these neurons were inhibited when the animal ingested food or water, that the magnitude of that inhibition was related to the palatability of food or whether the animal was hungry or thirsty. So what that means is that an animal that was hungry or thirsty, the neurons were more strongly inhibited than when the animal was in a normal state that it had as much food and water as needed. We also found that if we took an animal and gave it really tasty food, the neurons would be more strongly inhibited than a somewhat less tasty food versus something that it didn't like, like quinine, which would lead to the least amount of inhibition. So what that meant is that these neurons were inhibited by food and water, and the magnitude of the inhibition was scaled by either how hungry or thirsty they were, or how palatable what they were consuming was. Just so that I can have, and our listeners can have a visual of what's happening in these experiments, can you simply kind of go through one simple experiment, this paper, and describe, for example, you put the animal under the imaging, and then you start feeding it a palatable thing. Can you describe that process, just a quick, like a simple experiment? So actually, these experiments are not that simple. And actually, it really should 
you know, emphasize that the talent of the postdocs who did this work. So this work was done by a terrific postdoc named Ron Gong uh, in my lab. And she did almost all of the experiments uh, that I told you about with some assistance from another postdoc, Sheng Jin Shu, in my lab, who's an amazing scientist as well. And so these experiments involve pretty amazing setup where these neurons are very deep in the brain and they have to put a very thin glass lens deep into the brain called a Grin lens for gradient refractive index lens. This is a piece of glass that's half a millimeter in diameter. And then they mount that in the animal's brain and then they put a tiny camera on top of the brain that was a design developed at Stanford. And it attaches to the brain and it's so light and so miniaturized, the animal can just walk around normally with this camera on top of its head. And this camera is peering in through this grin lens and it's imaging the calcium activity of these neurons that are only about 10 microns in diameter. Okay, so this is not simple. And then they're extracting all this light from the different neurons flashing away, and then they have to process that in order to extract the neuron activity and remove it from other ancillary signals. Okay, so in this experiment, you've got the mouse set up in the way that I described with this grin lens right inside the peri-LC, the neurons expressing the fluorescent calcium indicator, and the head-mounted camera where the animal's running around. And then all that Rong did was that she took a feeding spout and would push it, there'd be a motorized step motor that would push it into the cage, and then the animal would come over to it, and it would start licking the, in some cases, the liquid food or the water that came out of it. And every lick, we could watch, in response to the licks, what these neurons did at a sub-second timescale, what their calcium activity was. And so she would do variants on this type of experiment. Maybe sometimes she wouldn't give the food to see if licking was having an effect on these neurons, and it wasn't. Or she would change the palatability of food or compare, put in multiple spouts so she could compare the responses. And so a big part of this study was really using this very technically challenging technique of in vivo calcium imaging and correlating that with the animal's behavior. So I would say that that was at least half the experiments in the study. And then she did another type of experiment, which is almost the inverse of that, where she would express these opsins that I described earlier for optogenetics, either channeridopsin or she used another one that was actually developed at MIT called ARCH, which had the opposite effect and would inhibit these peri-LC neurons. And then every time the animal would lick, she would either inhibit or activate these neurons. So this is also on sub-second timescales. She's able to control the activity of these neurons on the same timescale as the animal's behavior. And this is, you know, was really the revolution that optogenetics introduced to neuroscience about 15 years ago. You know, that's really interesting, Dr. Sternson. So then what hypotheses did you end up generating based on these findings? Based on this idea, we had the, we we refined the hypothesis for how this brain region worked, which is that wherever the animal was consuming something, the magnitude of the inhibition would have some influence on how much it continued to consume. Right. So the idea was that other circuits, and actually the AGRP and the SFO circuits are probably the right ones, control the tendency of an animal to go out and look for food or water. But once they find that food or water especially with the AGRP neurons, that system turns off. These AGRP neurons that I was telling you about that activate feeding, they are not engaged while the animal is eating. So their job is just to get you there. And once you're there, you have your first taste of the food. Now, if it's palatable, it inhibits these peri-LC neurons 
And then that inhibition promotes further consumption. And so because these neurons tend to suppress eating and inhibition of these neurons essentially disinhibits eating, that's where the double negative feedback comes from because it's a disinhibition process. But it's essentially a self-propagating mechanism where the initiation of consumption, if it has a strong inhibition of these neurons, and it only is strong if it's palatable, promotes further consumption. So this was called a long time ago, the salted nut effect. And we've all experienced this. We're not hungry. We put something tasty in our mouth and we just keep eating it. That's what kind of, once you get to the food, these neurons are what keep you going. This is this double negative feedback process where inhibiting these neurons proportional to how palatable the food is determines the likelihood that you'll keep consuming food. This is the type of process that we discovered. We weren't actually going out and looking for it. We were just looking for this convergence point. But it makes sense that this palatability mechanism would be one of the mechanisms that's shared between hunger and thirst. This is wonderful, Scott. Never thought uh, eating and drinking is that biologically complex phenomenon. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't realize that. And actually, well, I would say it's in between, right? It is definitely complex in, this, in the way that the brain is complex and you have to deal with neural circuits and that there are actually many different steps that have to be essentially explained at a neural circuit level, right? The, we didn't even talk about why they stop. You know, we, we've talked about this double negative self-sustaining feedback loop, but essentially there has to be a set of mechanisms that, that make them stop as well. And these are either due to distractors or they're actually specific satiety mechanisms that are in place to stop these types of feedback processes. But absolutely, I mean, but I think they're also solvable, right? So it's sort of right in the middle. It's hard enough that it's interesting. But I really do believe that in, you know, over the coming decade or so, we will actually understand this in a way that it is, you know, something that you can, you can really make reliable predictions on in the way in which uh, different neural processes relate to whether you'll eat or, or the reasons why you eat. That's also important because if you know what those neurons are and you know what receptors they express, you, in principle, can also interfere with that from a more therapeutic perspective. And I think that's a whole other part of this that's really part of the value of this kind of research. Yeah, actually, my, my following question was exactly targeting what you said. So just to recap so far what we have talked about, you moved from the food-seeking neurons, which is the AGRP neurons with hunger-specific neurons and the SFAO neurons, the thirst-specific neurons, and then to answer the question why it's easy to keep eating once you start with identifying a new subsets of neurons that you call them peri-LC neurons. And then on top of that, you found that these neurons, the response was stronger in situations when, when eating or drinking might be more pleasurable, and such as when mice were hungry or thirsty or when you were snacking or something especially sweet, right? So my question would be, does it mean if we keep eating tasty food, we will eat forever? So it doesn't. And that, that's the part, the third part of this. There are three main processes. Process one is to seek the food or the water. Once you find it, you start consuming it. And that's self-propagating feedback cycle. It's good and you keep eating. And then while you're doing that, there are other signals building up in your body, both hormonal signals and also signals from your organs that tell you that your stomach is expanding or there's a hormone being released by your stomach that 
is telling you that there's nutrients in your stomach. And both of those signals, the distension of the stomach, as well as the nutrient responsive hormone release, both of those things in concert help shut off your willingness to keep consuming food. So these three processes have been studied increasingly well individually right? And we know they all have different properties. They have different neural dynamics. And that's why we can be confident. These are three different processes with different circuits. Now, what is less well understood, and this is an area I think for future investigation, is Mm -hmm. exactly how do they all interact? What is the handoff between the food seeking and the food consumption? And then exactly how does the satiety circuit shut these processes off? There's a little bit known about that, but that's an area that really, now that we have that, essentially that framework, right? I, I call it the three pillars appetite, but these three different processes, you know, understanding how they interact is, is an important next step. Which is critical if we know how these three are connected, you can inhibit the third part and control for implication like overeating. Well, exactly. Let me, you know, expand on that a little bit because that's exactly the prediction that uh, is being used for most attempts at uh, appetite-reducing drugs. And it turns out they actually don't work that well. And so the reason is, is that they primarily target one of these three processes. And, and actually, most people haven't really at least acted on the knowledge that there are these three separate processes. They say, well, this manipulation makes a mouse or a rat usually behave as if it's less hungry. So it must be inhibiting some maybe simplistic idea of an appetite process. But instead, what happens is they inhibit one of these three processes, and then the other two compensate once the animal starts losing weight, because there's a profound amount of redundancy and regulation to maintain whatever weight that you have. And so you're right that targeting that satiety process, that process that essentially ends meals is important, but it's actually not sufficient. And what's really going to be, I think, the key to get the sort of lasting and durable weight loss that people are really looking for to solve the obesity crisis, right? I mean, obesity requires a huge amount of weight loss typically versus I want to take off a few pounds. I think it's going to require interventions that target two or maybe all three of these different processes. And and maybe one of the most important ones is this hedonic eating, right? This eating once that we were just talking about the peri-LC and all the circuits that that's involved with to be able to manipulate the palatability process, ideally without influencing any of the other things that we find to be pleasurable, right? It needs to be selective just for this food palatability in order to reduce some of the tendency to overeat once it starts. That's a really good point. And like most of the current drugs out there target more of the hormonal regulation, right? And so how do you envision in the future that we could potentially target all these three pillars? Like, are you envisioning a drug? Are you envisioning a device? How do you see the future of this research? Well, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of possibilities. So let's just deal for a second with the traditional approach, which is drugs, pharmacotherapy. I think that given what we've learned from the last many decades of pharmacotherapy is that you can find molecules that will reduce appetite, but it's on the order of five to maybe at best 10%. And what people really need for obesity are drugs that reduce body weight 30 to 40%, just in terms of the amount of excess weight that obese individuals have. And there just aren't drugs on the market that do that yet. 
So what would be the approach based on this systematic strategy for identifying circuit nodes that are involved in different aspects of appetite? Well, first of all, you would want, I think, a target systems that are not all in the same process, right? Not all in the satiety, not all in the food seeking, but that cut across these three different processes. And since we understand now circuit nodes, neurons, right, that are selectively involved in each one of these processes, we can actually measure all the genes expressed on these neurons using another method called RNA sequencing. And so now we know every expressed gene in that cell, and some of those genes are good drug targets. So you would want to identify the genes that are good drug targets across the different circuit nodes for these three different processes, and ideally find a combination of drugs or maybe a drug that targets a receptor that's across all three of these different pathways and be able to modulate the process in that way by influencing each of these three different pillars of appetite. Have you ever noticed any sex differences in these three pellets that you introduced? I suspect that there will be sex differences, although the studies we have performed, we do not notice those. We tend to focus on fairly extreme conditions where the animal is lost 10 to 15% to of its body weight, which is highly motivating for both males and females. In addition, both males and females will eat the highly palatable food that we provide to them. So part of the reason that I suspect we haven't observed sex differences is because we use not very subtle conditions. And if we came back to the problem and examined it with higher resolution in terms of different palatability or maybe perturbations to the animal's brain that were not as strong as, as profound, then I, I suspect that we would see those differences because they certainly are seen in other people's experiments, sex differences in both in adiposity. It's also well appreciated that lactating females, not surprisingly, consume a lot more calories to so their appetite is increased because they have to provide additional food for their offspring. And so there are a variety of cases that are very interesting where sex differences or differences in the animal's state that are not just about their hunger or thirst physiology might have big effects on appetite. It's just not been an area for our specific experiments. How other diseases like diabetic or neurological diseases might impact this three different subsets of neurons? It's a great question. And it's an area with relatively little research in terms of the other neurological diseases. Diabetes has really substantial hormonal effects that are actually quite complicated. And so it's almost a whole other just conversation on top of this one. I think there, there have been some interesting preliminary studies looking at things like the effects of Alzheimer's-related proteins and their tendency to affect, for example, the AGRP neurons and reduce their numbers, which might, at least in mice, might have some effect on appetite. In general, sickness, we would, outside of neurology, but just the experience of sickness, fever, infection, all of these things are well appreciated to suppress appetite. And one of the main targets of that is this satiety system. And actually, it's interesting. There is this, I kind of think of it as a little bit of a knob for the satiety system, where if you turn it just a little bit off of zero, you get satiety and you just go a little bit more to the right, you get nausea and a feeling of profound visceral malaise. There are probably other satiety systems 
there, there's evidence that there are that don't cause that visceral malaise. But one of the best characterized systems is really on that spectrum. So you're somewhere on a spectrum from just not being sated and being hungry to being, you know, okay, I don't need to eat anymore. And if those same neurons just get a little more active, now you feel really sick, actually. And actually, some of the different markers for infection, the different, I'm sorry, some of the different uh, circulating factors for infection also activate those same circuit nodes and cause you to both feel sick and also not feel hungry. Right. So actually, that is one thing we were back to this question of, well, why don't you just turn up the satiety path, reducing appetite and losing body weight? And actually, that's the reason it's just so unpleasant is that when you engage that pathway too strongly, people feel nauseous and sure, they, they won't eat, but they also won't take whatever drug makes them feel so horrible. These studies mostly done in or all the experiment has been done in mice model, right? How translational you think this is and are you planning to move this, the, the findings of these studies and your previous uh, research to human studies? You know, one thing to keep in mind is that many of the brain regions that we're studying are really from pretty ancient structures. And so they're very likely, the same neurons and their circuits, the extent that they've been studied in humans also seem to be present. And it's absolutely the case that you know, how these circuits contribute to obesity in humans is an area that, not surprisingly, lags behind our understanding in mice. But I think that how we approach this in humans is likely to be largely related to therapy. A lot of the types of experiments we do in mice, you couldn't or wouldn't want to do in humans. But as we were just talking about earlier, this question about, well, what receptors do these circuit nodes express? And can we make drugs that target these receptors that we would then be able to reliably predict the effect on human behavior? That's likely to be one of the primary ways that we uh, find out how relevant our understanding in mice is to humans. And I, I would just say that on the basis of, there's a likely a, a strong conservation in these core survival circuits across mammals in general. And of course, we are also mammals, mice are mammals. Now, our behavior is different. And so, again, that's I'm going, coming back to the three pillars on this. Human behavior is different than mouse behavior, and humans can kind of do what they want. So there may be other aspects that we have to essentially model in mice to model some aspects of human behavior, sort of the, some of the more decision-making characteristics, the tendencies that we have to put ourselves in situations where we might have access to extremely rich and high-calorie foods all the time, which most mice don't get access to. But we can, we can just think about those uh, scenarios and attempt to model them in rodents. Now, it's not going to be a perfect model. But again, what is a lot of our, our goal here might be to help people who are overweight or, or obese. And so ultimately, I think we're going to, the, the, a lot of the interface will be at the level of how well we can design these types of rationally conceived of therapeutic strategies. You were talking about how you sometimes confuse your thirst for a hunger. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. We actually have a, a paper on the bioarchive exactly about that topic. So <laughs> it's something, uh, if you're really interested in that, uh, it actually, you can model that in mice, it turns out. So it's just oh. another example of how if you think about a problem, people, you can go and see, well, are there conditions in which we can identify that in mice? And that's a, actually a medial prefrontal cortex process that uh, mediates that. So, you know, I, I just think 
you know, it's it's relevant to this 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 type of question of well, you know, how do you how do you uh, model something in humans and mice? Well, you really have to like go out and and try and and develop a model that would address the type of human question uh, within the rodent model. All right. And with that, we thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure learning about the very complicated but also necessary network for our society as well as regulating thirst. I think this is such a basic concept that, you know, everyone experiences the fact that we don't quite understand it to the extent that you're currently trying to dig in is ridiculous <laughs> in a way, but also great that you're going down this path and really digging into the details. I'm really, really happy that we were able to have you as a guest to share the progress of the science. Well, it's my pleasure. And again, I'm really grateful to be invited and very um, happy to see that you all are doing this to communicate science to a broader audience. We appreciate it, Scott. Thank you so much again for joining us. And it was a pleasure and honor to have you. Hey, Betty, you know that Miguel D. Cervantes and Don Quixote once said, hunger is the best sauce. Do you think he had to figure it out first? I don't know, Shen, but I'm sure he could not have done all the advanced experiment as Scott did. If you enjoy learning about the hunger and thirst brain circuits and you would like to learn more about scientific breakthroughs, remember you can support us by going onto our website and becoming a patron on Patreon. We need you to keep talking about science for everyone, to everyone. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And don't miss our next exciting episode on tissue engineering and regenerative medicine with Dr. Anthony Atala a world leader in regenerative medicine field. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed, and thanks to Dr. Rudy Tanzi for providing us with the music for our intro. We value our incredible team who can make Science Rehashed possible, and this includes our writers and producers, Madura Lolikar, Kara Brenner, Shuang Zhang, Kiara Maffei, Lauren Granada, our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our social media manager, Eileen Amador, our business development director, Vichy Lowe, our sound editors, Sophia Nastri, Tavi Pollard, Jerry Warsaw, Phineas Dewins, and our video producer, Matty Lee Wood. Finally, we'd like to thank our creative director, Emma Brand, and our web manager, Rebecca Solison. If you don't want to miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to tell us what you think about our episode in the comment sections. For updates, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can visit our website at sciencerehash.com. Mm-hmm.